Welcome to season three of the Afros and Knives podcast. I am your host and the guardian of this audio space, Tiffany Rosier. This is an interview series that elevates the profiles and stories of black women working in food and beverage, hospitality, food justice, food science, and food media. Just in case you got lost and found your way to this podcast by accident. Let's see, we'll get into that food science situation as the season progresses. Just let me say, I have always believed that if you work in food, you work in STEM. But I digress. This season's first conversation is with the brilliant and generous Osai Endelin. She is a writer. More than that, she is the shaper of worlds and a consummate storyteller. Reading her work is transformative and nourishing, and in a world gone mad, it is nice to have her words in orbit. This was a damn fine way to come back from a break. During my editing process, I get the pleasure of hearing these interviews more than one time, and I had just as lovely a time listening to them Uh, listening to this one as I did recording it. And I hope that the spirit of our chat comes through. We do explore some mature subjects towards the end. Nothing too crazy, but I mean, if you got young kids in a room, you're not ready to have, um, you know, a hard conversation with, uh, you might wanna be mindful about your volume and maybe put some earbuds in. So before we get into this episode, I want to thank the Chef's Advocate for sponsoring this episode of the Afros and Knives podcast. The Chef's Advocate is a boutique consulting agency representing a global cross-section of culinary professionals. They continue to make a positive impact on their clients and the lives of the many people working in the industry. So you can follow the Chef's Advocate on uh, Instagram and make sure to check out their new IG series called Kitchen Talk Live with their dear, dear host, Miss Annette Davidson. And uh, just keep your eyes on that account because I know there are some really special things coming um, from the Chef's Advocate. So just keep your eyes on their IG account. I also want to extend a welcome to the newest seasonal sponsor, 10 Speed Press and Clarkson Potter. I am and have always been an avid reader. I still remember getting my very first public library card like it was yesterday. Everybody was getting hype about Transformers and I was getting hype about chapter books. Um, My very first vocational aspiration was to be a librarian. I absolutely adored my um, middle school and elementary school librarian. Shout out to Miss Purton if you're still with us. Uh, Thank you for instilling in me a very deep love and appreciation for reading. Um, I am still tempted every day to uh, retire from the food game, go back to school, get my library science degree, and just get lost in the world of books. Um, So if I disappear, y'all know what happened. I've always thought that cookbooks were like getting a cheat code for living your life. Um, The new book from Chef Hawa Hassan with Julia Tertian in BB's Kitchen gives us over 75 recipes from eight different East African countries that touch the Indian Ocean. And these nations were the backbone of the spice trade. So you know that these recipes have the love of the ancestors and some incredible flavor profiles, so you are definitely going to level up your kitchen game. Hawa interviews BBs or grandmothers like Ma Vicky, who shares Tanzanian flavors in her stewed plantains with beans and beef recipe. 
there are recipes for chicken biryani, for quick stewed eggplant with coconut date bread, and a sweet and sour braised lamb with tamarind. So for the love of comfort food and home cooking, uh, go pre-order this cookbook. Our friend Osai even says that this book illustrates what the wisest among us have known all along. The seat of power in food, its soul and expertise, has always begun at home, at the hands of skilled women in their kitchens. This book was published by 10 Speed Press. Again, it's called In BB's Kitchen. It's available October 13th, wherever books are sold. So I would get on that if I was you, get that pre-order so you don't get played. Uh, my deepest gratitude to the Afros and Knives patrons for your constant support. Um, none of this would be possible without you. And to become a patron, visit www.patreon, P-A-T, reon.com backslash afros and knives um, if you love the podcast be sure to follow subscribe share and comment and now let's um you know let's get into oh wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute i needed to tell y'all who won this summer giveaway so remember we had a summer giveaway up for grabs was the uh, 35th anniversary edition um, seven and a half inch chef knife from Global Cutlery USA, and then the uh, Scan Pan nonstick skillet, which I am loving more and more every time I use it. Um, so those two prizes were up for grabs. So I would love to congratulate our winner. And this is the IG handle and the email address that was on the subscription registration, Tiny Aphrodite. Again, the winner is Tiny Aphrodite. Um, I will be reaching out to you on Instagram, so be sure to check your DMs. And thank you all so much for the love and for participating. I appreciate so much you guys being engaged uh, with the giveaway so I can do more of them. Um, and uh, to Tiny Aphrodite, I appreciate that slogan of yours, tiny in stature, larger than life. You better go ahead. Uh, Y'all go check out uh, Tiny Aphrodite on Instagram. And of course, that's at Tiny Afro. So it's A-F-R-O, not um, the uh, literary spelling of Aphrodite, but the, um, the doper spelling of Aphrodite. So yeah, Tiny Aphrodite on Instagram. She has, there's a shot of these sauteed fiddlehead ferns on there and she's showing off. So definitely go check her out. So, okay, okay, okay. But really, 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 let's get into this conversation with Osai. I'm Osai Endelin. I got into food writing because I had been interested in the beverage world. I studied at SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, and I went to the Atlanta campus for graduate school. I did an MFA in writing, and one aspect of the curriculum was to do an internship for credit, and so one of those internships I did at Atlanta Magazine, and it was through that digital editorial role that I started to look more upon the food stories and just something that I was interested in. I was already following the craft beer scene in Atlanta at the time where I was living. And at that time, uh, the restrictions on brewing were still in place such that they were just actually lessening. So the, there were all these rules that were allowing people to really develop and 
create styles of beer that weren't previously possible to do legally in the state in the years prior. So it was kind of an interesting time to be in that world and talking to people who think about, you know, bacteria all day. And it was kind of around that time that the South was having an interesting conversation around what Southern food was and how proud of it fine dining chefs could be in, in a new way and also kind of a reckoning with the indigenous ingredients in the region. I mean, people had often been looking for far afield for, for inspiration and to, for the sense of what mattered. And even though there had been some stand apart folks, it was becoming more of a groundswell to find um, many chef driven restaurants where people were using fennec seed and talking about okra during lineup and things like that. And I started to think about my own background more because I'm from California where I was born and raised and to this point have spent where I spent most of my life. And my family had migrated on my mother's side from Louisiana and Mississippi to Los Angeles in the late 40s. And my father had immigrated to Southern California from Nigeria, where, where he was born. So it was kind of the first time that I started thinking about those culinary legacies in a way that felt very authorial for what the conversation around food was beginning to pay more attention to in a particular way. And it was also kind of my introduction to that world at the same time. So I had written an essay about looking for Nigerian food in Atlanta. And that was the first time I had really, in a public way, tried to unpack some of what I was experiencing and thinking. And it was pretty much from that piece that I think I shifted away from drinks writing so much and into more of a query around, you know, a lot of it at that time was like news and web-based pieces that were not necessarily so pensive, but I kind of shifted into that world where I could see a future around talking about my identity through food and thinking about food as a demonstration of a culture. But to get back to your French question, I majored in French at UCLA where I went to undergrad, and that was following taking French classes just in my public schools throughout California since I had been in seventh grade. And that was in part because there were really two language options. I you know, was very fortunate to go to well-funded public schools my whole life. So I had Spanish or French as options. And I've always had a physical issue with rolling my R's. Like, I just can't do it. <laughs> and even though I um, <laughs> was born in California my whole life, you know, the wise thing would have been to major in, uh, or to study Spanish. And I still shake my head at that, but my French is still very good. So yeah, so I I didn't plan to major in it, but you know, college you just you trying to do what you can. So um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, but I still go. I try to you know try to go about every year uh, the last few years, and it's good to see friends there and keep that language up. Of course, you don't have to be in the country of France to speak French, but it is still a place where I have found a lot of joy. Oh, I love it. I remember taking French in high school and then losing like the the muscle memory of it. And then I ended up working at this art supply store 
And there was three or four employees who spoke French and I kind of overheard them. And I was just like, my ears completely perked up. And I was like, by the time we left working with each other, we were like all a little, a bit more fluent again. And I was just like, it's incredible how like language works in that way. Now, my fa- one of my favorite essays of yours is The Place of Found Lost Things. I, I mean, I'm one of those people like once I'm once I'm in it to win it, I read like everything, kind of like, <laughs> try to savor all of it. And like one of the things I like loved about your writing and like the tone of your writing is that it's it's got a really like charming romantic quality to it without it being like frivolous and it's super grounded. But I just like the it's it, you, it really feels like you're kind of in your head in an invited way, not in an intrusive sure. way. But um, it was definitely one of my like my favorite reads in the last like two Thank years. You. So that idea of like using like taking the land and turning it into like into something. And like, did you find yourself in a space of like looking at like investigating like farming and like homesteading? Or like, how did you find yourself kind of talking about this particular topic I was always like that curiosity has kind of followed me since I first read it yeah so that was a piece I pitched to the Oxford American and I just remember thinking about there might have been something around Florida some conversation around Florida where I was living at the time being uh sort of not of the south really because you know people kind of think about North Florida being in the conversation of the south as we think of Georgia and Alabama and you know, South Carolina and that kind of, you know, Mississippi, all that. But for some reason, like because of South Florida, people want to remove that from the South. But I've always been in the conversation that like that is also the South. <laughs> so you can't just say that because there's, you know, Cuban people and Haitian people and Spanish is spoken like the main language in many of those southern florida cities that like it doesn't count like no like the south gets to claim that um exactly so i don't know i think i had just been thinking about that and i definitely was thinking about ownership you know black land ownership and i had come across a statistic or you know a a detail about florida amu the you know historic black university having been granted thousands of acres from the USDA. And I just wondered about, I think I started then like Googling about land grant institutions and, you know, some of the history there. And the more I thought about it, I wanted to see like what was going on down there and whether or not there was uh, any story to be told, particularly again, like thinking from a place of the sort of front of house world that I had been in in restaurants and as a customer, the pressure that so many black people feel around whether or not, or if they can or not choose to be in hospitality or food and beverage, what benefits they might actually reap from that choice, if any, you know, and that's obviously coming from, you know, a generations long conversation around liberating black people, so to speak, from those roles and what it means to be claiming them in such large numbers and being willing to embrace that history at the same time. Right. And so I was thinking like, what does it mean for an institution that was founded when the the training that was happening was for agricultural purposes, right. Um, And then technical purposes, like, you know, many of those schools were, were, literally working with students, you know, in, in the field and, you know, meaning 
you know, in the arena of husbandry and animals and, you know, farm management and things like that. So, you know, it's not that there weren't professional roles as well, but, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, I thought it was interesting that HBCU would be kind of really claiming like, okay, we're going to take this land and we're not going to like, and it was also way out. So FAMU is, um, for people who may not know, is in Tallahassee and this land that had been granted was in Brooksville. So it was uh, quite a distance away. You know, it was an interesting concept. And so I, I had drawn up a pitch and sent it over to the Oxford American. And I wanted to see kind of what happens now, right? Like <laughs> yeah. with this. And that essay was my attempt to kind of capture some of that. For me, it's like I'm just starting my foray into like food writing. So pitching and like thinking of thinking through a story has is like a new practice for me. So I'm always now I'm constantly asking like, okay, how did you come to that? Like, why was it interesting? Why were you curious about that? So I usually am like people who've been writing for a while, especially in this space, I'm always curious as to how they come to a story that they feel is important enough to like put, you know, to, to write about. The other one was the one in the Washington Post about, I want to say it's the one about your mom, your relationship with your mom. Oh, yes. And I think, it, uh, what is it? My mom made a salad. <laughs> and that one like definitely struck a chord because I, you know, my own relationship with my mother and like kind of coming to that space of like when you talk about how, how you had to admit that your mother knows you. <laughs> and um, yeah. I was just like, yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, the uniquely like mom, daughter conversation to like, like a moment of realization for yourself like yes my mom does know me and wow and so and so like for me I was just like chuckling to myself as I was reading it and like realizing that people like we have you know especially women have very parallel journeys when it comes to like relationships with their mothers and so like for me I was like really curious as to like that that catalyst for you what that moment of realization was like and like enough for you to go you know what I should write this down and share it <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, I think, oh, thank you for reading that. Mm-hmm. I had been in communication with the food editor at Washington Post, uh, Joey Onan, and he needed a, a Mother's Day essay. And he reached out and said, you know, I'd be really curious if you have anything on this subject you'd like to say, maybe not specifically about Mother's Day, but, you know, around the conversation of your mother and food. And he had met her recently. And, and obviously, like he and I had been in you know, we've, we've known each other for a while. So yeah. So I said, yeah, let me think about this. And so I came back and pitched him. I started with a dish. I think if I had to sort of think about my relationship with my mom, what would that look like? And I had started thinking about this salad that she used to eat and, you know, it would have like prawns and hearts of palm and, you know, things like that. And I had not really realizing it adapted that salad for myself and it was kind of in the thinking around that essay that I was like oh (laughs) well isn't that funny (laughs) and then I started to see you know when you when you're always kind of thinking narratively and reading a lot of literature you know you're always finding the parallels and the metaphors and all that and that is something that emerged pretty quickly for me and I wrote the essay pretty seamlessly you know there were a few points where I felt like I was getting into the weeds on like, but she was wrong about that thing. And, you know, <laughs> and I proved her like, you know, like, whatever. And, and then I was like, delete, 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 delete. Um, so I think, I think that that tension is still re- represented in the essay in the sense that, yeah. you know, you can, 
love someone to the point of the sun shining too bright and still, you know, recognize that sometimes, you know, it's like your mutual, it's your mutual brightness that, <laughs> that uh, yes. reflects yeah. and that's not exactly. necessarily something that has to be fraught, you know. Yeah, it can definitely be like hand wringing sometimes and just like, okay, if I would just like let it go and relax into the moment, I should I should be okay. But I know my instinct is to typically like just fight it for a minute and then finally just relent. (laughs) Be Like, yes, I guess I'm more like my mother than I anticipated. And it's okay. It's Um, It's like not it's not bad at all. You know? Yeah. It's like my mom. This is not a bad thing. My mom is pretty great. I mean, I think like looking back, I'm realizing kind of like how old she was when I was a teenager, you know, she had me right after she graduated from college. She was young. And like, I'm thinking about like, if I had a 15 year old right now, like I don't have children, but it's like, holy, you know, oh my God, like that would be a hot mess. Um, (laughs) And she did pretty great, you know? And like, there's, there are things that, you know, I mean, I uh, have the distinct honor of being like a student, mentor to a couple of teenage girls and I haven't seen them in a while because since I moved we're not meeting on the campus of the school like like we used to but I try to stay in touch and you know there's other young people in my life that I love very much and try to be available to and I and I'm conscientious all the time in my conversations with them of how much I'm shaped by how my mother did things and sometimes being willing to do things that she wasn't you know like I think I'm more like her mother my grandmother Ruth in that sense that I'm pretty comfortable having the awkward conversations. For me, there's so much more comfort in saying the thing that nobody wants to say. And like, and, and kids start to recognize that too. And so they maybe start coming to you. And, you know, it, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm not like a guidance counselor or like a, a counselor of any kind, but I understand why she couldn't do some of those things when I was that age. And I also recognize that that has, you know, allowed me to embrace parts of myself maybe earlier than I would have otherwise yeah yeah and I had I have that same like kind of relationship to my mother's mother like her name her middle name was Ruth which is hilarious and she was just that she was that person like to this I think she passed a few years ago and like I used to tell people like I think you know for me I'm extremely biased about her but you know I was like she's one of the greatest minds of the 20th century like that's just hands down but you know a big part of that was because I feel like I was more like her than I was my own mother and so you know when people meet me they kind of if they know who my grandmother is they instantly like place me they're just like aren't you johnny ruth's granddaughter i'm just like yeah they're like yeah i can tell i'm like oh really they're like yeah she was one to not hold her tongue about much anything either i'm like ah okay that's why outside of having her face you know i just had the same tendency to like okay well let's just talk about the elephant in the room and like get it out in the open oh she'd make you do it yeah she'd make you do it and you'd be like (laughs) Well, I, I've been thinking about her so much because, um, you know, just this period of uh, just so many big decisions, it seems like it's happening all the time. And, you know, I try to keep her close to me. She died mm-hmm. uh, two years ago. She was 90, like about 92. So like an extraordinary life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I was streaming some music the other day and Marvin Gaye popped on and I suddenly had this memory of being a kid and asking her you know, I think someone had said something about, oh, you know, we were playing Marvin Gaye or something, you know, he'd come up in conversation and someone mentioned him, him having passed, you know, obviously this is many years after he'd passed. And I said, oh, grandma, you know, how did he die? She was like, his daddy shot him. 
<laughs> just like, oh. like there wasn't no lead up there was no runway uh, she's and, like i don't need to sugarcoat this for you like why and you know she you know explained and i mean it was it was inconceivable to me that like <laughs> that could happen like <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a tragic it's story. So I don't great. need to be lied about that, but um, right. But, but it's this, like, oh, okay, she did not hold back. No, she was not. You know, she was not about. You know, she could. She was very compassionate and loving, but she always felt like, even with weird topics, you know, like you answer when a child asks a question, you answer the question that's asked. And where adults often yeah. get really tripped up is they're trying to give context and history and answer all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, I remember seeing Dances with exactly. Rose with her and my younger brother when it came out, the Kevin Cosner movie. So I was probably like 10 or 11. <laughs> that takes like eight years to watch. Oh yeah. my God. We went to the theater. I remember this. And uh, there was a, there was a sex scene with uh, Kevin Cosner and I forget the actress who plays the young woman who you know is obviously like kind of stuck between cultures and my little brother leans over to her and he goes grandma what are they doing and you know this was not like a explicit scene right a lot of it was suggested and you know like they're they're in the you know they're in the tent and it's like the dim lights and then you know they're kind of moving but it's all kind of you know it's been years since i've seen it and she leaned over back to him and, and she said they're making love and so then he kind of paused for a moment and leaned back and said, so why are they taking their clothes off? And she says, because that's how you make love. And then he just watched the rest of the movie. It was fun. And so the credits were like, rolling and um, the credits were rolling. And this man in front of us stood up as we were walking out. He turned to her and he said, I didn't know how you were going to get out of that. <laughs> She's like, I wasn't trying to get out of that. It was just answer the boy. He asked a question. And that's all he needed to know. Like you didn't need to be like, well, oh God, like there's unseen genitals doing things. Like there was there was none of that. It was just like, okay, great, moving on. He was more interested in the horses anyway, you know? Um and so I just I always think about that, you know. Also, I think just in my communication with human beings, not just young people, but yeah, it's such a relief when someone in the conversation just is able to say what needs to be said and I I try to do that with my writing too and just sometimes you have to kind of pack it out of whatever's on the page but you know you're you're trying to chisel down to something clear and for me that's kind of why I have chosen a career where every day there's a blank page which sometimes I'm like did I choose this? Oh yeah that's did I choose this life? Is this my fault? That is a unique unique thing about like writing about food and things that are like a daily, like that shift almost daily. You're just like, okay, so what I wrote about yesterday will not be what I write about today. Awesome. Here we are again, me in the blank page. This is going to be a lot of fun. And like the one thing I've tapped into to like help myself and like to your point about like keeping your grandmother close is like I tend to write to her first when I write, because for me, the beginning of something is always harder to write. And so I tend to like the the easiest place to fall into is like, if I was to write to her or like to call her and like have a conversation with her about a specific subject, like I start there. And so like with my writing, it's always like me talking to her. And so there's times where like, I'll get an edit back. And I just remember like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not talking to her. Like, she's definitely one of the most intelligent women I have ever known. And so like, I don't like dumb down my vocabulary very much or like edit myself very much to be, you know, depending on the audience. And I try to remember like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not talking to like this extremely well-read woman who writes 
know herself because she was definitely a huge stickler for like vocabulary and using like okay what's the synonym of that like what can you like how can you express that a bit better a little more thoroughly a little deeper and so I always kind of like push myself and so when I get things back they're like can you use a different word here because I don't think the general reader will know what that means and I'm like oh yeah I'm writing to her so it does make an incredible difference when I like remember like okay let me let me dial that back a bit. Yeah. I'm actually directly talking to her. I'm just trying yeah. to channel her a little bit. Yeah. I think however it gets done is how it has to get done, you know? Um, and I think exactly. that's, that's a special thing uh, to see in communication like that, in a sense. I, I know what that is. I I don't know that I have done it so directly, but, you know, I I do feel like sometimes I'm, I come up with some ideas, but then sometimes the connections I feel like I'm able to see or still are things that I'm being sort of proverbially candid and I try to be like very honoring around that you know I'm, I'm on a continuum of brilliance and ideas and and source yeah. right that is something that I've learned to cultivate and I certainly you know I'm not issuing my own skills or the study and practice that goes along with with something like like writing but you know, I feel like you have to kind of defer to that which precedes us and is bigger than us at the same time. Exactly. One of my favorite questions to ask people at this point is like, how is your work an expression of just who you are? So like if someone was to read, you know, they haven't met you before, they've read, you know, the body of your work, like what could they take away about who you are as a person from reading, you know, what you've written so far? You know, kind of thinking about what I hope and what some of the feedback that I've gotten is <laughs> that I am interested in complex topics, but I also enjoy levity too. And that there's a way to, you know, handle all of that with, with candor and wit and also, you know, very discernible anger at times, you know, some of the topics that we are dealing with, you know, in the world of food and African-American history certainly are, sometimes very fraught with trauma and really devastating and, and experiences and, and loss, but there's also so much honor and integrity and, and, and celebratory history too. So even though my, I feel like my writing more recently has been in the, in the food realm, I think I have always tried to, or whatever topic I'm writing about, bring, you know, some, some openness and I'm trying to have a conversation that maybe hasn't been had before or had before in the same way. And I, I mean, I even remember when I was doing like profiles for college alumni magazine and I did some stuff for Georgia tech for a few years. And, you know, these are, these are not investigative pieces, you know, these are not like literary type of writing, but you know, you are trying to get past the surface of, of something right. and, and tell an interesting story so I hope people think, you know, well, this person has is thoughtful and considered and, you know, human, you know, I mean, in the personal pieces I write, I, I really, a lot of the personal essays that, you know, I'm, tr I'm trying to show like a range of emotions because, you know, we so often get distilled down to something that isn't always representative. And I've, I've done a lot of, you know, work on myself to, to try to become someone who can be the same person anywhere. So I'm not speaking any differently to, you know, my family than I am speaking to a university president or a CEO or a major donor of an organization I'm part of, you know, like 
And that's just so much easier. God, you know, I mean, like the oh work gosh, to get yeah. there can be challenging, especially if you've been taught to sort of put armor on and, and, you know, gear up and all of that. But I have somehow been able to find a lot of freedom and not convincing people I'm something that I'm not and then having to own that falseness <laughs> on a daily basis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and I know like, some people have yeah, to do that. I can be that. consistently me. Yeah. yeah, I know some people have to do that to survive. And so it's not about saying I'm better or more evolved. It's simply that like I, I went kind of a hard route in trying to do that. And it, it didn't always feel like it was going to be, be uh, the right move, uh, you know, but it has, at least for now, it has seems to be, you know, working out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, is there a is there an author or a book that you I can't I don't want to say like inspires you, but like has really been kind of like a pivotal read or, a, you know, a, a very influential writer, like someone who can like anytime you go back to something they've written, it like pushes you. You're reminded of something that you you may maybe forgotten or just that, you know, kind of that voice that that is always kind of playing in the background for you that you're like, yes, OK yeah, you know, I'm going back to read that again, or, you know, their work is always kind of a, a part of the equation for you. There's so many people I can think of for different reasons. I feel like lately, I have not been doing that kind of reading, in part, just because I'm so distracted. Some of the work that I'm doing is requiring a lot of sort of targeted reading. So I'm kind of popping in and out of certain things. Um, I, I can say that a book I read fairly recently kind of like makes me feel like locked and loaded right there's this book called heads of the colored people uh, it's a short story collection by Nathisa thompson spires and it's a pretty extraordinary collection that it was my first time reading her work you know she deals with black people in in circumstances that feel very <laughs> real even though they are there's one particular story that she writes in epistolary form, and it's two women who have children at, I think, a school or some kind of uh, activity, and they're kind of writing each other with this, like, Black women's, like, upper middle class shade about, like, what the other person's child is doing. And it's just this back and forth conversation that there's so much subtext there, right? <laughs> like, um, and so I think... <laughs> You know, I read a lot of, I try to read a lot of fiction. I try to read different types of authors. I think, I guess I think about that collection with the question you just asked because of the voice that she's able to give these different people. And it's such a, it's such a great book that conveys just how, how different and, and, you know, unique black people are even, you know, across a single culture. There's so many facets to us that it's wonderful to kind of have someone turn that in on itself. And I was reading a review on the show Black AF on uh, Netflix, and there's a ton of like very interesting critiques and people have like the most visceral responses to the show. They either absolutely love it, absolutely hate it, or have never watched it. And it's like a rare like center point for most people. But the one, the most interesting like review has been, you know, like, oh, I love this show. And, the, the, you know, because it shows that like Black people aren't a monolith, that Black people can be unlikable. You know, like it's like it just kind of was for them refreshing to kind of see 
more complexity around like black stories and black people and how black people are presented to the general public. So like, you know, the narrative isn't, you know, black people have to like clean up and have this sterilized cultural moment on television for people to, for everyone to relate to them. Like it was, they were giving the show and its characters an opportunity to not be relatable, kind of like, you know, curb your enthusiasm. Yeah, curb your enthusiasm. They're like, it just gives people permission not to like you. And it's okay that you don't like this person because you're quite frankly not likable. But like the idea that, you know, a black person or a black character can be unlikable, but you can still agree with them. And so it was just a really interesting take on like creatively how they executed that show and understanding like, you know, for me, television always has, you know, a sea of writers behind it. And like to know as a writer to like sit down as a writer and go, okay, how do I, how do I like get really honest about how we are represented either in writing or in television or any type of like creative work. And I just like, I always love when a writer takes a little courage and just goes, okay, so we can be honest with each other at the very least. You know, if it's, if it's only going to be us reading this book, at least I can be honest. Like, look, there's some stuff we need to talk about. And yeah, like you said, that subtext where if you have grown up in like black culture with black women, you would know what all that stuff between the lines means. And yeah. And then, you know, having grown up, with a diverse type well, diverse archetypes of like black women and knowing that you know you know there's like that upper middle class black woman and then there's you know like there's some very distinct qualities in each you know each type of woman that I've had the direct connection to and I, it would it definitely for me is like someone who's able to capture that and dispense it to people would be something I need to like I need to write down the name of that book now. yeah it's the colored people it's fantastic yeah I thought black AF was was great and uh, I thought it was so absurd and and extreme and uh, you know that's obviously you know what Kenya Barris wanted and you know I know a lot of I know people who hated Blackish on ABC and loved Black AF and and uh, that was interesting to me I mean I think both shows are fantastic in in their own ways I I mean I especially loved the dynamic of the children characters the child actors on that show oh my god Marcy uh, Martin, I think, is just one of. I just hope she's well taken care of and, and paces herself because yes. I feel like I just want to see her when she's you know sixty, just acting yeah. up on TV or something. Oh my god! It's like please protect her at all costs. I know. I need to see her later on in life. Just so I mean, I'm enjoying her so much now. So I mean, I I get that. I there's something to that when you are kind of inheriting a conversation around not mattering as much you know it can take something out of you as a viewer or or a consumer of of storytelling to you know sit with that reflection right that doesn't it doesn't feel great and that's not always honorable and I think for some people it's a struggle to do that in a way that doesn't feel like it's harming in some way and I'm very glad to be you know, just decolonized enough to be free of that. Exactly. Um, so, you know, like I'm going to, you know, en- enjoy that. Definitely. To And to that point about being decolonized enough, like, you know, it's a bit of a, a complex question, I guess. It's 
what do you think outside of the obvious stuff that we are like kind of talking about around food media and specifically food writing, you know, like subject matter and like, you know, the storytellers and the writers being representative of the culture and that kind of thing. What, you know, it from a literary standpoint, do you think is like missing from like modern food writing outside of like the racial inequalities and like kind of the obvious like voices that are missing, like the context, I guess, in the subject matter and the tone in that space. Like, what do you think we really could use as far as like what people could be writing about and how they could be writing about it that could really enrich the landscape of food writing right now? I guess I will answer in a way that says, I think some people are doing that, but that in the way we have structured our attention to media institutions and many of the, of the legacy ones, it becomes a question of how many people will actually see it, you know, and, and can you, can you, can you monetize it in a way that allows you to do that work for a living? But I think people still are sometimes fixated on food as a means of bringing everyone together. And that to me is a false notion and a bit of a shortcut. And I think that, you know, we have to sort of interrogate even in our, even in passive ways, how, how we kind of rob people of, of the real story. I think what we need more of is, you know, a willingness for, for people to learn more before they write or to, you know, maybe ask, ask themselves or, you know, the publication asks, you know, asks itself whether or not they are the right people to, you know, be telling those those stories and i guess this doesn't all have to be around nonfiction things like reporting on trends and, and new restaurants and news events but i don't know even in the in the fictionalization around food i mean i think about i don't know i think about even like a show like insecure which is not in the world of food media or, or literature but there's a component that food has in in that show that feels very germane to the way black people eat in LA, right? And if that show was predominantly produced and, and written and directed by people who did not have distinct experiences in that culture or in that part of the country, then you'd be having very different experiences as a, as a viewer. So I think the same is true when you think about how stories are put together you know, I recently used the platform of Instagram stories to do a close reading of a piece that the New York Times published just a few days ago from when we were recording. And the article was written by the Southeast Asia Bureau Chief of the New York Times. And it was talking about tropical fruit in Thailand. And it sort of led with this idea that even though it's delicious, and this is like, the time of year where these fruits are sort of um, at their peak of you know, sugar content and richness that, God, these things are difficult to eat and they're hard to enjoy. And they, many of them smell bad and, oh God, you know, by the way, there's like, there's also this whole thing with the virus. And I mean, it was, there were just, it was a really, it was a really poorly executed piece for a number of reasons. But when I think about that piece and my breakdown of it, you know, in no way personally attacking any person who was a part of executing it, but really trying to draw attention from, to the readers. Like, this is the stuff that we just sort of swallow and, and yeah. say, like, oh, the New York Times said 
this thing smells like death. Well, you know, I'm never going <laughs> to eat that, right? And I'm not you know, that. Yeah, the yeah. author might believe that, and many people might believe that, but your job in journalism is not to frame that as a fact. You know, you can say something is, has a strong odor, and then you go find a source who feels that way. And if you're in a local market, you might want to try talking to people who shop at the market and not call up the British the British lady on the other side of the globe who's, you know, written about this food. So, you know, it's choices like that that I'm asking for people to be more conscientious of, not just on the creation side, but on the consumption side. You know, so I, I would just like, you know, that that article to me did not tell the truth. It shrouded very biased opinion in like a, a fact, a factual like window dressing. And that's dangerous, you know, it's dangerous even when we're talking about you know, lychee and rambutan and, and dragon fruit, like, because you're, you're ultimately commenting on those people and you're commenting on that culture. And, and of course, you know, we're here in America where those fruits are available in, in a lot of places here. You're, you're, you're doubling down on the impact of that, not just in a global sense, but in a, in a local sense at times. And so I think, you know, we need people to be conscientious of that and not because they're afraid, but because they recognize like, you know, is that what you came to this business for? Like you came to this business to excoriate people's food? Like for what? You know, like, for what? like, like really? To what end? You know, I Why? mean, it's kind of incredulous to me. So yeah, I think, you know, we need more people, you know, more interested and curious and empathetic and willing to be responsible for what they know and for what they don't know. Mm. And to not presume that just because they have lived in a place for a period of time or come from a particular background that maybe lends them some credentials in a room full of white people, that does not mean that you have carte blanche to write trash. <laughs> and so right, um, exactly. I, I would like to see more attention paid to that. That would be, that would be lovely. I know I'm, I, I, often like go back to like I have a very specific list of books I kind of like read almost every I cycle through every few years and I I often look at like the food like certain like modern food writing and I just wish it had like a larger a larger scope like it really takes into account like nuance and 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 detail and it like exactly to your point like to just be more mindful and more responsible with like how you write about something I was talking to uh, Kalisa Marie from Kalisa Marie Cooks yesterday, and we were discussing like the work of Anthony Bourdain and someone like himself and how more often than not, like he lets you make up your own mind about where he was and what he was eating. And he didn't really try to instruct the viewer on how they were supposed to feel about whatever was going on on the screen. And I just, I kind of miss that. I want that kind of tone to be struck in like modern food writing It's like let people make up their own minds lead with the facts and you know it's okay to like add some color based on your own personal experience but to kind of like lead the witness almost in a way where you're like someone's reading it and now they've made this like hardcore decision about a particular bit of food or a restaurant because of how it was written about and it's just like a lack of like responsibility there like okay well I've written it and now I can step away and let the damage be what it's going to be and there's just no, you know, people lose so much when they've made like a choice based on something you've written. And I'd prefer like to see people write 
to strike up someone's like light a match to someone's curiosity and not so much like have them make a hardcore choice about I'm never going to eat that I'm never going to try that I am eating it now and I'm going to stop like it just all of that always seems so like destructive and, and counterintuitive for me when it comes to when it comes to food you know for me the like your work definitely kind of hits a lot of different, like different places, like, you know, you, because of, you know, what you pitch or what someone's asked you to write. And, you know, is there something that you want to be writing about that you just aren't currently, like you haven't quite gotten either the time or you're not, or you're not sure like how you're going to approach it, but it's definitely been like sitting with you. Well, I'm, I'm fortunate to be at a place in my, and how I think about my work that nothing feels inaccessible to me. I feel like there's a way that, you know, there's a perception maybe in the market, right? Like when I think about editors and publishers that I'm working with uh, about like what I quote unquote do and don't do. And, you know, that's, that's true to an extent. Like, you know, if I get some random email about like writing about lipstick and I'm like, I, I don't think I'm your person. Love lipstick. <laughs> would love to read the article, but like, I'm not going to do that. Gonna, I don't, you know, I can't do that right now. And a lot of the things that I am working on that maybe are in spaces that people wouldn't necessarily think of me and it's like they're in progress, but I sometimes feel like not wanting to talk about something until it's either like quote unquote official or it's, it's on its way out only because the writing process for me is so laborious and full of thinking. And when people are interested in what you're doing, which is a real privilege to have that they are sometimes very curious and ask questions and ask questions and sometimes it's not that I'm bothered by that it's just like I I don't like to give people the impression that I'm willing to talk about something and then have to shut it down because I'm either still I'm still figuring out the words or I'm still kind of sorting around different layers and it's like it's not it's not a done thing you know and there are people with whom you can have that nascent idea conversation but I find a lot of times uh, the types of folks to kind of poke in like that on specific things generally are not those people. Like, I don't want to write about that. Oh, I hate it. And it's like, well, oh, no, when, you're, when you're starting a little baby idea, it's like a little baby, you know, you got to, you got to nurture yeah. it. You got to like rock it, you know, you got to keep it real tender and, and safe. <laughs> and, you know, you can't have somebody who like doesn't mean any harm, but just can like poof, blow past you. And it can be like kind of heartbreaking. Even as an established writer, it's like, you know, you're like, I remember this interview where the director, Francis Ford Coppola, said that he got up early to write every morning. Um, he was working really you know, hard around the clock on different scripts because he had to get his writing out before the phone rang and someone hurt his feelings. And I was like, that is so true. Like, you know, the minute that, so you, know, you, t- you turn on Twitter, you're like your heart is broken and now you can't work. But <sighs> I said to you earlier that, you know, I haven't always written about food, you know, when I started writing, I was very interested in the United States military. And I kind of used that as my entry point into figuring out how to do nonfiction. And you know, I had a dear friend who I grew up with that joined the Marines at the same time that I thought we would be starting college at the same time. And that was like really shocking to me. And because I was in the community where I was in the community and kind of, you know, in a in a world, you know, as a 17 year old, 19 year old that in a post 9-11 situation, like people weren't doing that unless they felt like they had to. Right. And his father's generation, you know, had been drafted. Right. So like this next generation was kind of like, I ain't doing that shit. And you can see, 
you can see that throughout our country, yeah. right? Like there's a lot of, right. it's very unequally distributed, like who, <laughs> where and who, you know, decides to enlist. And so I kind of used that as an entry point to kind of learn about the Marine Corps. And I did a lot of research and travel and read a lot of books. I got a lot of war books and, and memoirs and historic accounts. And and I, I feel like there's a way for me to kind of explore that maybe at some time it's not something I'm hungry to do right now like um, no no pun intended but I think about that in the consciousness of you know many of the conversations that come up around around food um, because I'm so interested in in systems and and how they operate and many of the things that we complain about in uh, the world of restaurants are present in the world of of our armed forces and and how we think about who is patriotic and and that I also used to write about art. I did, I did a few pieces of in kind of the art criticism realm. And I got to kind of tie that in a little bit earlier this year on a piece I did for Resi, where uh, a restaurant in Brooklyn called Oxalis did a collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum when they had a Hindu Wiley painting um, displayed next to the Jean-Louis David painting that had inspired it. So it was kind of cool to like, going to go back to thinking, um, you know, about those things. And uh, I don't know, I, I used to, uh, I'm so, I said Jean-Louis, I mean, um, Jacques-Louis Debbie. I, I had some uh, experiences taking photography and printmaking when I was at SCAD. And I did a semester in France for that time. And I was looking at some of that old artwork recently and thinking like, oh, maybe I need to kind of get back into some of this because it's an interesting way to process, right? Like words can be sometimes really intense but those are like a couple of areas yeah i i mean i went to the art institute of uh, philadelphia so i understand that uh that thinking because i was like every now and again i'll go back and i go maybe i should pick up like acrylic painting again because it feels like <laughs> feels like it might be a good avenue to like you know get some to to find my way to like some words on the page just through a different a, a different medium if, if necessary have you done any like fiction work because i know like a lot of the work i'm connected to like through your website and other places is more nonfiction and like you know reporting especially I, and strangely enough like my mom was a cosmetologist for a long time so your article about bronner brothers and the, the hair brothers. Was pretty- <laughs> yes i was like reading that i'm like oh i need to know about this how did this happen oh god i would love to get the chance to do more pieces <laughs> like that when we can be free again like i i think oh, um, that was so great <laughs> i think i would love to be able to like kind of capture moments like that but i feel like there's even a more i don't know a little bit of like a, a celebratory, but still kind of like a dark humor way to do that in, in yes. a lot of spaces. <laughs> you know, I, I can have a pretty dark sense of humor, but wait, sorry. I got so distracted by Bronner Brothers. What was your question? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I remember that it, hair I like, show. Oh, I, I got to ask you about that. Say, like that hair <laughs> show. I've never been to a hair show. And like, um, oh, it God was bless you. phenomenal. I mean, yes. I, I don't even know. I wrote that for the cut maybe like five years ago. And Exactly. <laughs> yeah it was a thing my mom took us every year for the most part when we were younger wow. and like those hair shows are a world unto themselves and like knowing like she did a lot of like main stage stuff she did some hair competitions where she won some gold medals and just that entire world of like beauty and hair is so interesting but yeah it's this little tiny like microcosm of a world that you're just like oh my god what is, is happening serious. in here and it does it smells like chemicals and hair and like steam and you know this little 
slight hint of like coconut oil in the air and it's just it's wild it's like really wild stuff and like once it started to evolve into the com- like the competitive like hair sculpting and hair design stuff where someone has like an eiffel tower or an egyptian pyramid on top of their heads made out of like synthetic hair it's just it's insanity and i love it and yeah i feel like it should really be like nailed it uh, you know but like for hair like <laughs> yes. i just yes. pitched listen someone can pay me well, you know, 20% Please, somebody. finder's fee, like whatever. Like, I mean, I just, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. I think, I think kind of digging into system. I mean, I think that's what like makes me interested in this world of food and the, the systems around food and, you know, the world of the, you know, United States Marine Corps and, and these little moments. Like, I think I'm, I think I'm always trying to like figure out like what's going on here, like in this tiny I mean, that's that's a tiny driving question. What's actually? You know, I mean, I think most people's writing starts with a question. And I mean, if you are ever interviewed by a writer and you like, you start talking about no comment or like, I don't want to talk about that. That usually tells like it's like catnip. It's like, what did you? Oh, ooh, there's something there. <laughs> there's something there. And maybe that's not a conversation you have with that person, but it definitely makes you think more broadly. And so, you know, I always tell people like. You like my grandma Ruth? Just answer the question that's asked. You know, like just you try to, you try to run and hide. Just don't make it a bigger situation. Exactly. Actually, the question about fiction. Like, have you written any fiction? Like, is there some? Place- I haven't published any fiction. I kind of tried my hand at it um, early on. I do have a couple of novels that are kind of just like fake circulating. I'm kind of ignoring them in my head right now. Fiction to me is very intimidating, and I know that's it's just it's a, it's the opposite for some fiction writers you know they they're like nonfiction. you using the first person and you actually mean yourself like what that is terrifying <laughs> you know and so it's interesting it's a it's a different it's a different animal and i i respect fiction writers and poets also like very very much i don't know we'll we'll see if i ever get get back to that i i also have some pieces that i had written that were really like sexy like there weren't they weren't romance they weren't they were not romance but they were like you know, kind of auto fiction, first person nonfiction, like that we're really trying to kind of explore sex as it usually does not get talked about among black people, at least heteronormative black people. And oh gosh, right. maybe we'll be delivered in one way someday. Uh, <laughs> like, but there's just like, we'll like so much that. that I mean, yeah, like it's really, it's like really inherited and like, you know, the way like I've seen a lot of black women be policed on the internet for what they talk about or what they, you know, speak up about, you know, whether it be yeah really glorious consensual experiences or, you know, issues where there has been lack of consent and, and assault and violence, like, you know, we're always kind of being mm-hmm. told to like, hold that in and keep that quiet and don't don't air family business and it's destructive it's destructive and i but i i there's so much censorship around that yeah yeah, there's this one piece i wrote in graduate school that like made my professor told like uncom. he was like i i (laughs) he's like just take this paper like um (laughs) so i took that to me that was effective and i remember actually sending it to a couple of 
I'm like, I okay, remember, so it worked. It was a piece about um, <laughs> a young woman who had just kind of, kind of had recently had sex for the first time because there's actually a conversation in the piece around like not giving something up like a virginity is not something you give up like you know like I you know so there was a so I positioned myself in the story as this young woman who has had that experience but it was sort of like messy and like undelightful and then being able to have this experience with with a slightly older fellow who wants to go down on her and and so it's like wow what what like (laughs) what is this and that was a very different experience so like yeah I remember having a few people read it outside of my you know writing workshop and I don't know men men were like sometimes very uncomfortable with just so much I guess yeah the the women's women's sexual experience yeah they're like we don't want to think about that it's like but you do and a lot so like how are you squeamish about the details at this point it's it's funny because like I talk about it pretty frequently now that like I've spent I've immersed myself in like kind of this podcast that speak that I speak to women almost exclusively and so like specifically black women and like knowing how much you're were raised to like self-edit and self-censor and then like kind of getting into these conversations and we're and you know the topic is like very specific it's food or wine or like lifestyle or any of those around those things but even in that like you know the ability for us to kind of speak very like clearly and confidently about you know just ourselves and our own experiences it's like the range has been really interesting to see which people which women kind of fall into the yeah i'm like i'm 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 good. I'm like confident, com- comfortable in my own skin and in my own life experience to the, like the other side where it's just like, I don't get to, no one asks me about me and I don't know much, you know, like, so it's hard to, you know, I find like some people have a challenge articulating, you know, their own life and it, to someone else. And I find like specifically in these spaces around like sexuality and relationships and like just being in love, falling in love and romance, it's even harder to kind of like, pull that out of specifically like black women because we're just discouraged from like discussing it in any manner and it's just like can you imagine if like you know Jane Austen's central characters were black women <laughs> like, like what, <laughs> what would that even look like if Elizabeth, you know Elizabeth Darcy was was black I just don't know and so like the fact that we're never kind of like the central romantic figure or sexual figure in most stories in most storytelling is always kind of for me indicative of like what we're kind of indoctrinated to believe about our own like sexuality and our own selves so yeah but that is a completely different conversation I think that's very much like in I mean just to connect that dot though I mean I think like we are sure like in a different space but you know we're talking about writing which is sometimes I think a very it can be very physical in some ways I don't know if people realize that like just the sort of the range of emotions that you can go through on a particular piece, you know, you can sit at a keyboard and feel like you ran a marathon and maybe even smell like it too. Um, yeah. After oh, you yeah. put in some work and, you know, it's, it's a release, you know, that's, that, I think you can, you can put that on a, on a plane of sexual feeling or experience. And I think the same thing it's for, for eating and for cooking. I mean, I think, I think most chefs, I think most chefs are very, I mean, this is going to sound, ridiculous but i think a lot of chefs are quite erotic i mean there is something about um, how food and eating has been written about and captured you know back to the media back to our storytelling infrastructure about and that has always kind of been rooted also 
in pleasure and which is, you know, here in this country rooted in, in whiteness. And so you have like a very racialized idea of even how talking about eating has evolved. And I know that there are people who've done some scholarship around that. So this is like a very real, real thing. I mean, I, I think like even the idea of the angry chef to me always would make me laugh because I'm just like, don't you know, you're creating out of love. Like, you know, I know you're like cursing at people and stuff. And I remember having an argument with the chef about this and he was like, no, I was like, I said, listen, all songs are love songs. And he was like, yep. he was like flew through the roof. And then he's like, that's not true. <laughs> da, da, da. And I said, it absolutely you, is true. you get, you get to the anger because your heart was broken. So like, you know, it can, that comes from a place of desiring love and wanting to love. And so I feel, you know, these are like the things that you're, that's like the baseline for like all of my stuff. It's like, this is the thing, <laughs> these are the things I, I, I think about. Yeah. So, yeah. That's that usually I usually fall back into that that thought process like when I'm writing about like uh, the especially the the execution of a meal more so than like the meal itself and like thinking about how someone gets there and like you know the like essentially like the pinnacle of that meal of course is the consumption of it but like the buildup of like preparing that meal and the thought process and then like the physical work that goes into that like, like there's very few experiences like that in life outside of sex and so for me I'm like it, it's an easy parallel for me like it, those connect really easily and it's funny to watch people like wa write about like southern food or black food ways and asexualize it a lot it, it becomes kind of a it, it becomes very technical and almost clinical because they talk about the effects on your health and that kind of thing and it always falls into like these very specific categories whereas you can you know consume other media around other you know kind of eurocentric topics about food and it, they do kind of discuss it in a more relational and like you know central way until so you're just kind of like oh so yet again here we are having this conversation this way and it's just kind of like yeah because I remember watching like water for chocolate for the first time and it's one of those like movies that really kind of tap into how like food is directly connected to like sensuality and, and eroticism and so it's you know this woman cooking food and feeding people it, they immediately feel what she feels and her the, the entire time she's cooking she is trying to speak to her sister's husband essentially and you know that whatever he eats that she's fed him like he has a, like a sexual reaction to it and an emotional one and so like you're watching them have this affair through her food and it's definitely one of my favorite movies i think it's one of the most honest like food movies i've ever seen because it really is kind of like you know if you are honest with yourself and you are a cook or a chef that is what you are trying to do you're trying to like relay a message to the diner or to the eater and if you do your job the way you want to you that message comes across loud and clear and if you feel like, you know, if, so if you have a, you know, it was just why I get angry about restaurants when I go and have a meal and I feel indifferent about the meal I've had, I usually am more pissed about it. I'd rather it be terrible or really great than to feel indifferent. Like I hate walking out of a place and going, oh, that was okay. <laughs> like that, you know, cause I feel like, you know, what did, what happened here? Like what happened to the exchange? Yeah. What happened to the conversation or the communication totally. where I just kind of walked away going, eh, that was fun. Totally. Yeah. It does feel like, you know. A little limp. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> exactly. So, um, um, 
so like these last (laughs) i know i'm like that was excellent um like pun absolutely intended the uh these last few minutes um just talk to me about like what you are working on and like how we can support you or what we can like you know be paying attention to as far as like what we can like what's coming up for us to read and uh, you know i'm one of those people like how can we like you know cheer you on root for you and in a existential way in a literal way as well i have an editor trying to reach me for one of those things so we this, <laughs> okay. this is like real life happening so we're going to do this real quick so i am i worked with uh, marcus samuelson on a book called the rise that celebrates um this incredible moment in american history for its black chefs and the cultures that they represent and so i'm really proud to be a part of that project that you know i hope people will be learning more about soon and i have a book project that is much further off but i think it's just cool to let people know that this is kind of in the discourse where uh i'll be working on a narrative nonfiction book that explores our dining and, and restaurant history here in, in america and looks at it from its systemic racist roots, which, you know, folks, you know, maybe, maybe listeners of your show would not be surprised, but a lot of folks don't realize how uh, rooted in the practice of slavery and in the culture around the owner's mansions and the things like that really kind of have glided us into uh, some of the same issues that we are still addressing now in terms of service culture and, and pay and recognition and where people's restaurants can even be and how they get supported or not supported structurally. And so, you know, I hope in that process to not just talk about the things that were terrible and tough and that continue to be, but to also, you know, share names and in, in places and, and really kind of help us map onto the past, like some of the achievements that were that were made by these Black figures who are such experts in, in food and, and beverage and service and hospitality and Many of whom, you know, date back much much earlier than we would expect. Um, you know, we were doing mixed use developments before that was a thing. You know, centuries before that was a thing, and the movement that uh, we had throughout this country, you know, and, and through the, you know the Caribbean and back, is much more layered than we um, have the opportunity to usually talk about. And I hope to be able to share that. And that'll be in a couple of years, but <laughs> uh, I'm working on that. And yeah, lots of some some collaborative projects. And in the meantime, that's up to other people to kind of talk about first. But I'm busy and I'm and I'm very gratified to, you know, have the proverbial mic from time to time. And I'm thankful for that. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you to our guests for spending some time with us. And thank you for listening in and for being a part of the Flies Click in podcasting. If you love these conversations, be sure to download, subscribe, comment and share. You can get further connected with the Afros and Knives community by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And don't forget to visit our website, afrosandknives.com, and sign up for our newsletter. Afros and Knives does this work only with the financial support of our Patreon community. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com backslash afrosandknives and pledge your monthly support. We are working on expanding into video as well as offering patron-only content this year, and you don't want to miss out. Until next week, may you be happy. May you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be at peace.